Welcome back to the Value Driven Investor Podcast, where we forge value-driven investors on a mission to live life on their terms. No matter where you have come from or where you are going, becoming a value-driven investor is in all our best interests because becoming financially free allows us to focus on what matters most, fulfilling our purpose. Our community of value-driven investors is committed to showing you the way. With the support of this community, you are sure to reach your goals. For all of us in the value-driven investor community, there is no greater gift than the gift of giving because together, anything is possible. Let's start this episode off by reminding you what stage of the process we're focused on right now. The survival phase. For everyone out there listening to the Value Driven Investor Podcast, just remind yourself that we're in the survival phase and that this podcast is a life cycle and we're starting at the beginning and we're going to continue to grow as investors. And if you're an advanced investor or a successful real estate agent, some of this might seem elementary to you and Bob and I get it. I mean, some of this is elementary if you're advanced. I remember when I played baseball back in high school and every once in a while I would be in a hitting slump and my varsity coach would come to me and say, focus on the fundamentals and stop overthinking it, Murph. And right now in the survival stage of the Value Driven Investor podcast lifecycle, if you're a successful agent or advanced real estate investor and you're listening to this podcast, I'm saying to you, focus on the fundamentals. Because based on my calculations, the bottom of the real estate market was in 2011. From that point, we have seen nothing but an upward trend. Well, real estate trends usually last around 12 years. Now, this is not an exact number. It's an estimate. It's something I learned from a mentor of mine who invested in real estate for over 30 years. He told me this rule of thumb when I was 25 and just had graduated college. I was so excited about getting in real estate investing. I just couldn't stay out of it. I just, I had to get in. And he said, Hey kid, just keep waiting. And based on this rule of thumb, he literally predicted the 2008 crash was going to happen. Now he wasn't sure exactly how the correction was going to happen, but he knew that somewhere around 2008, give or take a year or two, it was going to happen. And that blew my mind. It's something I'll never forget. And if that holds true, we should start paying attention to the fundamentals again, because at any moment, there could be a shift in the real estate trend. We could see a pullback. Now, Robert and I were talking just before this podcast, and we really don't see a reason why that's going to happen here in the next probably 12 months. But it's the fact that if you focus on the fundamentals, the fundamental of every 12 years, pretty accurately, there can be a shift in the market. The trend maybe goes down instead of continues to go up. It doesn't mean it crashes every single time. And that's where we come to micro flipping. Micro flipping is a fundamental strategy. It's a strategy that any successful agent or any successful and advanced real estate investor can use on a regular basis. So where do we start when we start micro flipping. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. And the first thing is, is we want to start with a personal residence because this is fundamental. And if you're in the survival phase or you're just trying to get started as a real estate investor, 
obviously you can tell that Robert and I keep talking about using a personal residence in a multitude of different ways, using it as a short-term rental, using it as a micro flip. And Robert, as always, buddy, I'm glad to have you on. And I know that you, when you first literally said real estate, something I'm interested in, I want to do, you did a micro flip on your own personal residence, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's exactly how I got started. I just wish back then I could have micro flipped into an Airbnb or something, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I mean, we have talking about two things there, but yeah, it was in 2002 when I was first doing that and I would just go from house to house, you know, every couple of years, take my cash tax free. You know, you get, you've lived in it two out of five years. Uh, I think it's up to 500,000 for a married couple up to like one, 250 for a, a single person. I'm not quite sure exactly, but you take that money cash free and you roll it to the next house. I mean, I rolled it from property to property to property until I built my own house, which was really, really cool. And I had a huge amount of cash equity in that house when I did it. And, you know, it's, it was just such an, a great process to go through to give me the fundamentals, but I risked my risk factor was so low because if something went wrong, I still had a house to live in, you know? And I think most people like the glam and the glitz of being an investor and saying I'm a real estate investor, but it's those little micro steps you take to get to the bigger level are the most important. And that's why I think starting out with your own residence is what you should definitely do is versus just go jump out there and try to buy some other home when maybe your home's lacking at home and you could just clean it up and make it look good. And so in 2002, you, you started your first house and then like how many mm -hmm. different houses did you actually do these micro flips fix up yeah. before you built that last house? What was the span of time? I'm just curious. So how 2002, many I did, let me see, one, two, three, and then 2008, I built a house. So yeah, about every two years I did that one, maybe there was a fourth house in there cause I'm in the same neighborhood. I found another house. So I sold that. <laughs> can't even remember. The other one. Yeah. <laughs> something in there, but it was like three or four houses, but it was roughly every two years um, that I, that I, that I did that. And it, and it you know, it worked out great. So and it yeah. Was, and it I would say from time. my perspective, uh, I never really did that turning and burning on houses. Um, but what I did do is I've never sold the house that I originally bought my first house. Yeah. Um, and I just kept it. And then I did do the micro flipping strategy to improve it. And yeah. then I was able to get a maximum rent kind of like the Burr method. Yeah. Uh, and now today, I mean yeah. the house, I think I bought it for like 210,000. It's worth like 345,000 and I'm getting nice. like, I think it's 1900 a month in rent and wow. like I barely owe anything on it. So it's, you know what, it, the micro strategy can be used two different ways because you mm -hmm. can call it a micro flip and you can do what Bob did every yeah. two years, tax deferred, flip that house and then eventually get into that bigger house um, and keep going if you want. Or you can also do the micro flip strategy where it's like, just take advantage of those improvements, maximize that property and keep it from a cash flow perspective. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, we call it micro flipping. But the micro flipping is probably just a cool buzzword for the fact of how do you make these micro in incremental improvements to the property to increase its value so you can increase the value that it delivers to you. Um, right. So Grando, right. you know, one of the things I want to talk about is like, if, if you're going to do this, like, let's say, okay, all right, guys, I'm survival phase. I just bought my first house or I'm even thinking about buying my first house. I'm sitting in an apartment. I'm trying to paint a picture for everybody here. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in an apartment right now. I've got money, some money saved up. I got my 5% down, my 3% down, my 10% down, my 20% down, whatever the strategy is. But I know I can get a house. Mm -hmm. Like, 
what house should I buy? Like, let's start there. Like, what house should I buy? What should my mentality be if I'm like, okay, guys, I'm all in on this micro flipping strategy? What house should I buy? Well, for the West Coast, I know the house, but I don't know for the Midwest is in that, but it might be the same house. But for on the West Coast, the, the classic home that you want to do that to is the 19 late 60s through probably 80s, even if you could get one in the early 90s um, home, single family ranchers are the best. Like that one house that you like everybody grew up in as a kid where you walk in and you've got the living room, you got the kitchen in the back, you got a hallway that goes to the bedrooms. Those are the best houses to do it with because, uh, well, A, um, thinking about, you know, historically when was it built, you don't have to do with a lot of infrastructure problems when a house was built in the 70s. Usually it has 70s, excuse me. It usually has like copper pipes. It usually has upgraded electrical or at least, you know, better electrical than what was done in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So that's one of the, the best ways to start is get one in that time frame. But also those homes also were not as compartmentalized as some of the early era homes, like the, the 40s and 50 homes were really compartmentalized. But in the 70s, they started to open them up but they still had the kitchen closed off. And so that's why I say with micro flipping, the one thing you can do is it's still, I would count as a micro flip is taking that wall down between the kitchen and the living room. Cause you can go in, you know, open up that living room to kitchen, that one wall that's there, even if you have to get a beam stuffed up in the ceiling and they usually can just span that, that opening, you know, to get it done. And then you're able to open up the kitchen, and living room, put an Island in, and now you've just taken a 70 style rancher home and micro flipped it and given it that modern look that everybody wants. They the come open in, concept, the open right? concept, right? Yeah. So that's what I love, you know, about micro flips. And, and I love the seventies ranchers, seventies, eighties. If you could score one in the nineties, that's just like bread and butter, you know, amazing. Cause some stuff was still compartmentalized in the nineties, but they were starting to get out of that. Usually the 90 ones might be compartmentalized, but they have vaults, you know, it's kind of what I've seen a lot in those ranchers in the nineties, like the living room might be vaulted but you still have that wall for some reason between the kitchen, you know, in the, in the, in the living room. So those are the homes I like single family ranchers. You can go bigger, you know, I've done bigger homes, but if I were to pick, that's the first one. And the, and the main reason be like, I think that is because when people are going to buy their first homes, they tend to like be nostalgic about those single family ranchers. Cause a lot of people grew up in single family ranchers. And so I think that they see those and if they see one that's updated, they're like, oh, they're kind of mind's blown, but it still kind of has that warm and fuzzy feeling as the house they grew up in as a kid. And for their first home, they got to be flexible anyways, you know, so. Yeah, I, and I, I would love, agree with you. I, I think the single family stuff. ranchers, and I definitely agree with you on the era of the 70s and 80s and maybe the mm -hmm. early 90s, depending on obviously location. And that's the biggest yeah. thing I want to add is that, the number one thing you need to think about is like, okay, what house do I buy? It's not what house do I buy, it's what location yeah. do I buy in? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people buy because they get emotional, especially if it's your first house, yeah. you get emotional about maybe your location to work or your location to family or your location to a girlfriend or whatever, or your location to entertainment because you're young and you wanna have fun and you wanna be in the right spot. Well, make sure that that location is good for the real estate market. Do your homework. Um, now, if that, and, and I bring that up because sometimes you don't see that rancher in the exact location that's going to be the best location to do a micro flip. Um, so I would start off with what Robert said. And I say, if you can find a rancher in that awesome location where you're seeing the houses be turned over, you're seeing mm -hmm. it's obvious the ways that you can add value. And it's obvious that that value when it's added is, is the result is there. Like that is the number one thing I would look for is find that location. And then if you can find that rancher, especially or or a 70s house, because exactly what Robert just said, 
those are easy to repair. They're easy to add value to without coming into these big issues that you can get into with remodels. Um, I think then, boom, you got the you got the house you're looking for, and then you just got to find that location that you're looking for. So let's say, okay, man, all right, I, I know exactly. Like, let's say that you can visualize exactly where that is in whatever market you're yeah. in right now. Well, okay, I'm going to go grab it. So what should I do? Obviously, Robert and I are big fans of find a real estate agent that understands 100%. how to guide you in the different nuances of remodeling that you can do to bring value into that property. Robert, go into that because I know you're super passionate about this as yeah. a real estate agent and an investor. Yeah, you've got to have an agent that isn't just going to walk in and tell you every house is good. I mean, that's what a lot of agents will do. You got to have an agent that maybe has got a little bit of investing experience on their own. And when you talk to them and say, hey, I want to employ this strategy where I go move into my house, fix it up over two years, and then resell it, you know, they should be really in key with that. If they're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, and like, Hmm, and they're not really quite sure exactly what that would be. That's a red flag, you know, yes. but the ones that know it, they're like, oh yeah, you want to go in there, do cosmetic updates. You want to clean it all up and then, you know, capture that equity, sell it, move it down the road. They start talking like that, like, which is how I would talk. If you're working with me as an agent, I'd be like, yeah, we can find those houses. Then the next step with that agent is what type of houses are they showing you? Are they now showing you new houses? Are they showing you houses that are outside your budget? Are they, if they're doing those types of things, it's another red flag, you know, like, hey, they're not in tune with what you want. And you need to have a conversation with them, you know, if, if they're not doing that. But I think that if you spend a little bit of time hunting for an agent or looking for the ones that, you know, potentially interviewing some agents to ask them about their experience in, in real estate and investing and, and all that. And do they own any investment properties? Have they ever flipped their own house? Like those questions are the questions that you want to ask, or do they work with flippers? Do they do that type? Do they work with investors, you know, and what are some examples of what you've done with them? You know, are kind of all the questions that I would be asking to try to hunt down that right person. Cause they're all out there. So many investors or real estate agents and real real estate agents for investors, vice versa, you know, but I think that if you just have that good conversation up front, then you can set the expectation of the type of house that you want and you'll probably have a lot more success, but the real estate agents, the most important, um, for finding Robert, a property. Let me, let me, on, let me throw this out there at you though. Yeah. Would you ever, cause I know how the young people are. Would you ever go, go it on your own and just try to figure it out on your own without an experienced real estate no. agent? no. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of people think that they can do that, but there's, there's so many problems. Like, you know, I, it actually equates to like, you know, Zillow just jumping out of the iBuyer market, right? Oh, weird. What happened? They're 25% down and all those things. Like they thought they could just buy houses using other people that aren't real estate investors because house buying is so easy. No, it's, it's not. I mean, if, if a professional company like Zillow is bailing out of that process and their whole going about it alone is basically what they did with that. I mean, would it make sense for you to do that? No, no way. Well, and at the like, end of the day, you, you know, I, I want to talk about that for one second here because there, everybody's talking about that right now. And the biggest reason why they're bailing is because they aren't bringing value. They're, they're all they're yeah. trying to do is buy a property at market value or in sometimes over market value, do yeah. nothing to create value within that property or that asset, and then just yeah. throw it on the market and hope that the market through appreciation and supply and demand provide them a dividend. Like yeah. that's about the highest risk thing you can do if you're not bringing value and you're overpaying <laughs> for a property. Yeah, right. I mean, so you'd be speculating exactly. if you went out and did that yourself, right? If you didn't have a professional, phase one professional is real estate agent. They know the market, they know that. You could accidentally overpay on your first home 
by 25,000 just because you think, oh, this could be a great one to, you know, microflip. You get into it and it's a catastrophe and you end up spending an extra 25,000 and you're already overpaid. And then pretty soon all your equity is gone because you're not going to make, you're not shooting to make hundreds of thousands of dollars on these things. You're shooting to make 50, 75,000, maybe a hundred and just keep rolling your money down the road. So that agent's the, the most important thing, you know? All right. So now we got our agent. I think I've done a bunch of homework, which you're going to have to dig. I mean, you're yeah. going to have to dig for the right agent and you're going to want to look for an agent that has experience, like years of experience. And if you can find someone like Robert or myself that has, you know, multiple years of experience, they're investing, they're doing their own deals. They have a crew, they have everything put together. Well, that's the value driven investor way. That would be the perfect agent to talk to. Okay, mm -hmm. so you got that agent, you found it. Let's say you found Robert, okay? Now it's like, okay, Robert, this is what I wanna do. Now, uh, how do we go about doing it? And I think the financing piece, again, we, we're gonna beat this drum a lot. The financing piece is just so mm -hmm. important. Robert, if yeah. someone was working with you and they said, okay, what do I wanna do with my financing? Cause you know, let's just paint a, again, a scenario. Like I've been sitting in a, living with mom and dad, I've been doing all the right things. I, I've saved 20% down. Like I can pretty much buy or use any kind of financing I want. What would you tell them as far as, okay, here's how you want to finance this micro flip if you're going to execute yeah. it on your own personal residence? Well, I mean, so if you have 20% down, I would say keep 15% of that money in your pocket and put 5% down so you have cash to be able to fix up the house. Um, and that, cause that's what you want to do. It makes no sense to put 20% of your money into the property when you're going to create equity with it by fixing it up, you could always. Well, plus, you want reserves, right? Because like yeah, one thing you and I both know is like it never goes exactly how you plan. So no. you better have some cash to make right. up the difference. You got to have some cash on hand. So if you have that cash there, then you can be able to exactly bank it over two years, have it ready to deploy when you get good deals. Like get good deal on appliances, Black Friday sale, go buy your appliances, right? You know, so it's just being thrifty, I think, in a lot of that and just being very smart to be able to walk through that process. But, you know, there's also other options out there. You know, there's that FHA 203K loan. If you are the type of person that can't live in something and fix it up, you could go the FHA 203K route. I think that's what it's called. Uh, yep. Work with a contractor, get your home your whole home fixed up and then live in it for two years and then sell it. So there's a strategy there. You might not make as much, but at least you got the home cleaned up beforehand, you know, but most people like with this strategy, you should just focus on living in it and doing the small updates over time and only putting 5% down and banking your money to be able to deploy it inside the house versus just give it to the bank to hold. And Robert, before we got on, you, uh, you were saying, okay, well, so how do I finance the remodeling costs? And you're like, well, uh, yeah. in cash, right? <laughs> and I think yeah. that, that brings in the strategy of if you put yeah. as little amount down on the purchase of the property, you have all this cash, you can then mm -hmm. use this cash to buy the things that you need or pay the contractor or buy the materials. Go over that because yeah. that was the strategy that you used when you did. Yeah. yeah, and I actually, you know, so I got in with the least amount down. I didn't even have 20%. So I was just working, you know, overtime at the fire department, take my overtime money and put it into my house is pretty much what I was doing. Uh, so I got really creative and I started using like uh, Best Buy, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, all the local stores. I get their credit cards where they would always do 12, 24, sometimes yeah, 36 smart. months. No interest. I buy my appliances like that. I buy all my materials, you know, at Home Depot or Lowe's for the house. Like pretty much every one of those houses were probably built with Home Depot and Lowe's interior stuff because they would give me that. And I'd make the, the payment that I would have to make in order to probably get that thing paid off, you know, inside of the, the 24 months or even like or at least the 12 months, you know, I'd be like, OK, now I got to pay this per month on it. So that way I could still be ahead, maybe get materials and then save my cash again to actually use it for somebody else to do labor. I did a lot of labor, but there's certain things you just have to bring people in. 
you know, if you're not good at tile, probably shouldn't go and attempt to detile the first time. You know, if you haven't had a good experience with that, you, I mean, or if you're not handy, you know, don't do things that you're probably not really good that at. That will kill so, you. That but, will kill you yeah. when you go to sell is if, mm-hmm. if, if an agent walks in and says, oh my gosh, who's the rookie that did all this? That is not yeah. going to be in your best <laughs> no. interest. It's not going to be in your best. But you see it all the time. But yeah. But if you're that type of person that can watch videos, do everything and you're super, you know, handy and you can figure it out and you can do a really good job because you got that attention to detail, which is kind of how I was. I was able to do all that stuff. I could trim out my houses, do all that type of stuff, but I wasn't going to paint it, you know? So that was the area where it's like, I don't have that level of detail. So I called a painter to come in and make sure that they paint everything. I wasn't going to do drywall, you know, like if I had to patch something, you know, because I tore out something, I wasn't going to do that myself you know so yeah. there's all those things but i would go to home depot and tell them what materials do you need you want drywall i'll go get it <laughs> you know you want patch what type of mud like what is it you know yeah. tell me what to get so i could get it all there and just break out and only pay labor costs with and i and i like your strategy where you're leveraging credit i just want everybody to know that as an investor when you start leveraging or or going too deep into leverage that's when you can get yeah. burned so you need to be very disciplined with your uh with your funds because if you're leveraging $5,000 on a Lowe's credit card, you need to have a way to pay that off because you don't want right. to be paying 23% interest. That's the game that they're playing is that yeah. they're hoping that you don't pay it off. So you pay 23% interest. So you need to be very fiscally responsible as mm-hmm. far as like, if you're going to use leverage, know how to play the game and play it right. Cause you don't want right. to be caught in that endless black hole of, <laughs> of interest. So, yeah. okay. <clears throat> now I feel like we have a really good plan of how to finance it. I have a plan that I'm to put as little amount down as I possibly can. And then I'm going to keep as much cash as I can. I'm going to try to use that cash very mm-hmm. smart and wisely use some leverage if I can, but just make sure that I don't get overextended on the leverage. Now, what contractor am I going to yeah. use? Like, okay, I can, yeah. yeah, maybe I can do a couple things. You know, I, I, I learned how to do tile because my uncle taught me. Yeah. I learned how to trim because my, uh, my uncle could do carpentry and, and mm-hmm. taught me how to trim and use a chop saw and, and some simple things like that. Um, but like, man, I, you know, most people, they're probably not that handy. Right. How do I find a contractor? And again, if you go back into the early episodes of, of the value driven investor podcast, we go deep into contractors. So mm-hmm. let's keep this a little bit of surface level, but Grando, I mean, finding a contractor again, that's well, about as important as finding an agent. I'd say they're pretty much hand in hand. If you screw those yeah. both up, you could screw the whole thing up. There, there's two levels of contractors, right? I mean, or maybe multiple levels of contractors, but the two that I kind of think about um, first is you got to have yourself a really good handyman, right? Because like those handyman guys can come in and do quick work for you and they can kind of help you figure out those little things that you need and you're paying them hourly and whatever you pay them hourly, you know, it's 50, 75 bucks, maybe get off with 40, you know, but some of them are, are cheaper than others, but they're just making a living doing that. Those guys are money because they have all that experience that you really, really want. The really good ones. They've done a little bit of everything. So they're really great at helping you patch your house back together and do that. But say it's just a little bit bigger, you know, a little bit bigger. Like you're going to take that living room wall down between the kitchen, you know, and the living room. Um, That contractor, you know, you need a general contractor, right? That maybe is running a small crew of people. But I always say it's like, you know, and I think I probably said it back in that episode, you don't want the most expensive, high-end, super high remodel contractor, and you don't want the one that is like the lowest, cheapest guy of all. Like that middle-of-the-road guy, 
that you can start building a relationship and you tell them, hey, here's my game plan. I'm going to do this house and I'm going to sell this. I'm going to do another one. I'm going to sell this. And eventually I'm going to buy a house that I don't live in and I'm going to fix it up. It's a great way to build a relationship. And you might have to go through two or three of them. You might get burned a couple of times, you know, and like didn't get the results that you exactly wanted. But I think it's one of those things. It's a, it's kind of trial and error for your area. And you just got to get connected in with a big one because they can make or break your equity. They can take all your equity right from you in just a few fail swoops of, you know, you getting things out of control with them and, or them throwing some pie in the sky picture out there that like, Oh, you should do this and you should do this and all this stuff. And this would be awesome. And like, and then you go with it and then pretty soon you're four months into something that you might not have even needed to have happen. Um, but I think that, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, well, I was just going to say like you transitioned perfectly into the last segment of the podcast here is like, well, okay, well now I found the contractor. I have the agent now what do I do to the house? And that was exactly what I wanted to start with is, well, number one is you need to triangulate. I mean, everything, whenever you're making decisions, you, you triangulate. And what do I mean by that? You have your thoughts on what you should do. You have your real estate agent's thoughts on what you should Mm -hmm. do. And you have the builder's thoughts. Now, another person that I think is very important to bring into that triangulation is potentially even a designer. Because now if you're getting answers, and when I talk about triangulation, When you're throwing a question out there to three different people in the industry, a real estate agent, a designer, and a builder, you want to get at least two of the same answers bouncing back because then you're like, okay, that's kind of what I should probably do. But if you throw it out there and all of a sudden all three of them give you different answers, you got to be going, okay, wait a minute nobody's mm-hmm. right here. I need to start like asking better questions. I need to stay, dig deeper, do more homework. But if you throw an answer or a question out there and all three of them come back with the same answer, then you know what? Odds are I would bet on that answer and I would go that route. Um, mm-hmm. And that would be my best advice as far as like, what should you do? Now, I think Bob and I can go into some details. We can go into a, a little list here of the top probably five to seven things that we would do right away on a micro flip. The first thing that I think Bob's already nailed is if you can find a house where you can reasonably take out one wall, which taking out a framed wall is not a big deal, and you can open up the house and have more of the open concept, then that is definitely a valuable uh, decision mm-hmm. to be made. Now, if you have to go farther where you have to put a header in, now that's going to cost you more money. But if the location can bear it, if the house can bear it, if your real estate agent feels like you can make it happen, and if your construction guy can say, hey, I can do this at a, at a fair price, a reasonable price, and all those numbers shake out, well, then adding a header and making it more of an open concept, yeah. I would tell you right there, that's probably one of the best things you can do. And then after that, we want to go to aesthetics. I wouldn't be thinking about anything like, oh, I'm going to add gables or reframe the <laughs> outside a curb appeal, yeah. like literally reframe it. No, I wouldn't want to be doing like any like jacking something up to add ceiling height in the basement. No, I wouldn't want to be doing like this huge addition off the back, like a sunroom or like just an addition. No, that's not a micro flip. Like those are mm. all major, major renovations. You don't want to be doing that. Um, so Grando, let's go. I gave, I gave kind of like how to open up the concept, which mm-hmm. you had done, but what are co- like the next two, three, four things that we can talk about to kind of help yeah. people do well, the micro flip and really bring value? Just, just, I mean, a lot of kitchen cabinets, you know, kitchen cabinets and countertops would be the next thing. Kitchen cabinets, countertops, and backsplash. 
uh, are the next thing that I would probably go after because you're going to live there for two years. So it's a great way to upgrade that you get the benefit out of living there with. Um, and so the first thing you want to ask yourself is, can I paint these cabinets and what day is the layout still great? You know, can I, the next thing is, can I take these doors off and get modern doors on these cabinets and would that look good? And if you can't answer yes to those two questions, then you're considering like, I need to change the layout and I need, you know, modern cabinetry. Then you take it out, you know, and then you, then you go down and this is another thing you can do at Home Depots and all these different places. You can do basic cabinet layouts with them and get your kitchen redesigned and, you know, get a whole new kitchen designed out of that whole thing. So um, the number one most important thing in a house, I think you and I both agree is like where you're going to increase the biggest value is the kitchen. hundred percent, hundred percent. That's why it's the first thing on my list every time. It's like, I'm going after the kitchen. I want it for myself. And then I, I want it because I know it's going to, it needs to be done first. So that way you don't, if you run out of money, at least you still have an awesome kitchen that you could present to somebody when you sell it. You know, if for some reason you need to get rid of the home, you've upgraded the kitchen. What and would be your number two? Yeah. I know what my number two is. When I go to the kitchen, then my number two thing that I'm going to spend money on uh, above and beyond everything else is what's yours? Mess master bathroom yes exactly the master bathroom like exactly because they live in that room every single day like every that day sets the so. tone for their day yep exactly yeah and i'm not talking like going crazy and it just making it look clean maybe a little tile backsplash fancier you know uh vanity if you can get two sinks in it that's always the huge win for a master i'm always trying to figure out two sinks and a master, even if I have to go tinier, like a 48 inch vanity and I got to go custom, I'll still get two sinks in it because of that, you know, I got a plan for that. And it's like, it's tight. It's going to be tighter. I live in a house right now with it. And I love having my own sink. You know, it's like this side's your side, this side's my side. Everybody, you're right. It starts your day off. So master bathroom is, is the key. What, um, okay. I want to go into a product thing because I think this mm-hmm. is important. It's a debate that I have quite often. Yeah. How much more value do you think a tile, like a real tile brings over an LVP, an LVT product? Like, do you think it even matters? Because obviously there's a cost benefit mm-hmm. depending on exactly what you're going with. But do you think that there's a big value, different in value proposition between the two products? Because those products, I mean, flooring is huge in yeah. the value proposition that you're going to add to the market and to your house. I mean, we both know it all comes down to the level of the home, right? Like, so that entry level home, which I would argue that probably most people doing a micro flip would want to be going after, like a higher quality luxury vinyl plank probably is just as good. You don't need to spend the money on floor tile. I wouldn't be spending money on floor tile. I'd be spending my money on the tile backsplash. The tile backsplash, you don't have to prep the walls like you do a floor, you know, when you when you're putting in tile on the floor, it's a multi-phase process and it takes a lot longer to do where a luxury vinyl plank can just go in and over it and it's indestructible. We've got, we have been using Lowe's really, a really good one from Lowe's. It's really thick and it's just like, man, this is such good quality stuff. And it's got like a 30 year warranty. It's, it's waterproof. It's never going to go bad. It's always going to look good. You know, where tile has upkeep and stuff like that. But, but when you have a nicer, bigger house, that's expected, right? But in an entry level home, that would just be a bonus. They're not going to add a lot of value for it. But if it, the floor looks clean, it's got a luxury vinyl plank throughout the whole place. I mean, that's something you can put in yourself, you know. Most people can figure out how to cut that and put it in. I think you cut it with a razor knife Most in most circumstances. You just cut it and then pop it. It's crazy easy. So, yeah, it's so good. But, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think flooring. So if you go, okay, what's my focus? Your focus is the kitchen. What's my next yeah. focus? The focus is the master bathroom. What's my next yep. focus? Flooring. 
you know, flooring. And then I, you know, it's a no brainer, Bob. And I agree with this one for sure. Then after that, it's paint, like you paint, 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 paint. Like you're going to spend the most amount, you're going to (laughs) spend the most amount of money on paint because paint is just freshens everything up it can mm-hmm. take something that looks old and dungy and it can make it look at hip and new like mm-hmm. i mean what are your thoughts on paint grando yeah i mean i'm with you and you know if you're not a good painter be very careful about painting yourself you know people notice paint if it's, it's done art. really really poorly and there's a lot of good quality painters out there that are at a fair price that's one of the areas that i find that i can get a pretty decent price across the board you can spend really expensive just like a general contractor but you can also get the handy guy that's been painting for years and just knows how to tape off a room and paint it all out and make it look awesome i mean so that's that is the most important thing really in the end when you've got everything else done painting you know is definitely the key what is there one more thing that you would add to our list that people just they you can't look past it yeah um so the other thing that i always put in there is how can what what can you add to the master bedroom to kind of give it that extra pop you know and a lot of times you know it could be just a tv mounted on the wall maybe something around that something cool you know a door to the outside might be something like if you have a window you can have a handyman put in a door right so in our area where we're at you can always you're not reframing it you're just taking the rest of what's already there and going right to the ground with it and putting a door inside that space if that doesn't require a permit where we are so any handyman can come in and do that and then you can kind of set up a little outdoor area and kind of give it kind of its own little master retreat so you're kind of setting that up so that's a cool thing that you can potentially do you know if if you have something like that but if not then it gets way more invasive to be able to do but anything you can do to the master bedroom like even if it's like a little bit of crown molding in the master bedroom that's painted out it just gives it that pop you know inside there where they think oh man this is gonna be awesome i got my nice bathroom i got my bedroom you know it looks great maybe if you can't do any of that maybe it's a built-in you know a mdf built-in that gets painted in the closet so when the wife goes in there and she has everything she can line out and isn't, you know, overcrowding the closet with everything, you know, so it's just things like that little tiny touches throughout the house, I think are really. Yeah. And my, my last one that I'll give everyone is lighting. Um, I would tell you lighting is the jewelry of the house. And if you really want to bring a new look to the house, you have now flooring, you have now paint and you bring lighting because a light fixture, if you have an old dungy light fixture and you have all the rest of it, they're kind of like, Oh, they forgot something here. I don't know what it is, but they forgot something. But all of a sudden, if you have everything else and your lighting is just popping and it's like, Oh my God, this is cool. This is hip. Like you set the mood. So I would tell you like lighting is a very integral part to really the cheapest way you can add value is through lighting. Cause you can get some really cheap light fixtures at Lowe's or home Depot that you're like, wow, they look expensive and they're not that mm-hmm. expensive. So that would be my last tip is just really pay attention to your lighting and what you're picking. Um, Cause it can add a ton of value. So hopefully this step two in the micro strategy, how do I start or where do I start doing a micro uh, micro flip? Hopefully we've bring in, brought you guys a ton of value. And again, for everyone out there, focus on the fundamentals because that's what the survival phase is all about. It's about the fundamentals. And at the end of the day, I don't care what phase you're in. If you focus on the fundamentals, that's what the pros do. 
Thanks for listening to the Value Driven Investor Podcast, where we lead by giving. For more information about our community and what's new, visit valuedriveninvestor.com. The Value Driven Investor Podcast was produced by Digital Legend Media in Minneapolis. Build your legend, digitallegendmedia.com.